Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Horderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the Firefighter Wellness Program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primalosophy.com slash UFF to get started. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Kevin Stock. He's a dentist and advocate for a meat-based diet. He was the founder and CEO of Muscle Science and a national-level physique competitor. He's the founder and CEO at Scriptus, Meat Health, and inventor of the NED device. He's the author of Your Drum, and Kevin shares all of his findings on his website, Notes to Self, his podcast, Kevin Stock Radio, and his Saturday 7 newsletter, which I look forward to every weekend. I really enjoyed our conversation, so without further ado, please welcome Kevin Stock. All right, Kevin Stock, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast today. You know, it's my pleasure. Um, look forward to chatting. So you've been a health nut since I think junior high, mostly fitness focused. So building muscle and losing fat. You were a national level physique competitor and you became a dentist. And that eventually led to inventing your own intranasal device to treat obstructive sleep apnea. Is this how the story goes? <laughs> yeah, that was a, a very, you know, good brief kind of highlight uh, reel. Because, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I grew up, I was an overweight kid, got into health and fitness. You know, that led me to go, you know, into college. I was wondering what to do. And because of my only real interest was health and fitness, I went into the sciences, uh, which led to dental school. I was thinking about pre-med, but lots of friends, parents and whatnot that were doctors and people I've talked to talked me out of that. Mm-hmm. But dentists seemed pretty happy with their lives. So I went that route. Uh I've done some physique competitions and uh, out of dental school, I specialize in treating, uh, it's called dental sleep medicine. It's basically treat sleep disordered breathing, which, you know, is a range from snoring to severe obstructive sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. And because of limitations of that, I had this idea for what's called the NED device. And man, that's been a five year plus adventure of building this device. Uh, to better help treat, you know, sleep disordered breathing. And yeah, you know, health and fitness has just been a huge part of my life throughout this entire journey. Uh huh. Yeah. And it seems, it sounds like being a dentist would be an awesome gig, but like you said before, choosing a career path just because it has good hours or the work is easy, isn't how to choose a career instead, choose a career that excites you. And you gave a commencement speech on this topic. So for the many students who missed out on all of these valuable speeches this year, what are the takeaways you'd like them to know on how not to choose a career? The way our society and culture set up is it's tough. And I don't want to say it sets us up for failure, but it does definitely set us up for some challenges because, you know, I graduated high school. uh, I just turned 18. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then you go into college and it's like, okay, what do you want to do? And at 18, man, I haven't, I didn't really experience much of anything besides, uh, you know, a lot of study and sports. Right. Uh, So a lot of just academic study and sports. And the only thing I really had interest in was health and health and fitness. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I, I mean, I just didn't have a lot of experience. And so, you know, you just take recommendations from, you know, people you look up to, whether it's your parents or a mentor or whatnot. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the road, <laughs> you didn't really, you know, you're basically, you're, you're asked to make such a, you know, life, you know, altering decision, you know, at such a young age and you haven't experienced anything, you don't really know what you want. And, you know, I think a lot of the times, you know, my thought process at the time was, well, since I don't know what I want, um, I have this interest in health, maybe go down a health route, 
Uh, and you know, what steered me into dentistry was talking to dentists that, you know, they seemed happy, happy. They had a nice, you know, work life balance. They made good money. They were respected in the community. They did good. I mean, uh, so to me, I, at the time I was like, you know, sign me up for that. I mean, that all sounds good. I don't really want to do anyway. So let's right. jump into it. And it's a big decision to make because like when you decide to go to something like dental school, you know, you're basically committing almost, you know, a quarter million dollars, four years of your life and four plus years of your life to, you know, getting this degree. Uh, and then, you know, you look back, you might get there for me, at least I, you know, I got to the end of that tunnel and was like, or is I was actually in that tunnel and I was like, is this really what I want to do the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I made that decision based off of like, you know, it seems like good hours. It seems like good pay rather from a point of view, which if I was a student now, you know, I'd, I'd be asking myself, what do I want to do all the time? What is something that, you know, I, I would say, I want to be able to spend more hours doing this on. I wouldn't, you know, concern myself about pay. I wouldn't concern myself about any kind of social standing or recognition, but basically something that, you know, you can see yourself growing in and passionate about and wanting to spend more time with. Because that's what I think you're ultimately going to find, you know, success anyways, and really beyond, you know, success as far as like financial success, but, you know, happiness success is being able to dive deep into something you're truly passionate about, something you want to spend time on. And so I know I'm kind of rambling on, but it's, a, it's an area I'm super passionate about is like, you know, because it's, it's a hard decision for kids at a young age, making these big decisions, <laughs> these life decisions, you know, something I tell people is like, uh, don't, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes seen as a sign of weakness, but I really think it's like an ultimate strength is, is being able to change your mind. Right. Because, you know, as we live, we get more information, we learn more about ourselves and what might've seemed like a good decision at the time. Like when I made decision to be a dentist, you know, now that I know more about myself, I know more about the world, I know more about my passions, you know, it's okay to change your mind, to change directions. And when I started giving myself permission to, you know, be kinder to myself, you know, allow myself to change my mind. It's not, it's not a weakness. It's okay. Uh, you know, I, one, I felt happier. I felt lighter. I felt more free and it enabled me to navigate to other directions where, you know, I have found, you know, success and happiness and more fulfillment in areas that I can see myself growing in for the next five, 10 plus years. It just makes life more fun to chase multiple passions and to be the the generalist or the renaissance man instead of the specialist. I get that a lot. And it's actually, you know, it's something that has given me um, troubles with in the past. And even, you know, to this day, because you'll see a common piece of advice where it's like, you know, jack of all trades, master of none or something like that. Basically, if you try and do everything, you're going to do nothing. Right. Right. And if, in some regards, it's good advice. But for me, it's very much not helpful advice because I have lots of interest. If someone's like to go to my website and like look at the things I'm, I'm, I work on, they'd be like, this guy is just like a scattered brain. There's no focus. Uh, but in, in reality, I am very focused, but I'm just focused on a lot of things. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, in reality, and I think about this a lot, you know, if, if someone does an audit of their day, of their working day, how much time of that day was really spelt, spent doing focused work? And I bet I would be shocked if it's more than one to two hours a day uh, of like really meaningful, impactful work. And the thing is, what I find myself doing now is I I work on maybe six different projects a day, but I dedicate 
I'm able to dedicate a really strong focus one hour or two hours into that and then switch to another thing to do an hour or two and switch to another thing to an hour or two. So it looks like I'm super, super unfocused doing all these different things. Uh, but I'm able to, because I'm not just doing one thing, I don't just get burnt out. Or if I try to do, you know, we can talk a little about some of the crazy things I've worked on. Like I took up art recently. Yeah. And if I tried to draw all day or just for eight hours a day, dude, I would be, I would be done in half a day. I'd be like, all right, I quit. I give up. But I can do a half hour, you know, now up to an hour a day and love it and look forward to it the next day and the next day and the next day. But if I tried to do it all day, I'd be, you know, I would have no interest in that. And yeah. that's a, it's true for a lot of things. Like it's true for like working out. I love working out for an hour every day, but if I had to work out all day, every day, no thanks. Uh, and so I, that concept, I, you know, I just kind of apply to, you know, most of my life. I love doing a lot of things and I do a lot of things. I just, I don't spend eight hours a day doing everything. Right. And it's easy to stay focused when you're actually interested in those projects. They're actually all passion projects. Yeah. And the projects stay interesting, more interesting. I think a lot of times, uh, at least for me, if I'm not solely focused on just one thing, mm -hmm. uh, and in that speech you mentioned, uh, I got to give at a university, uh, is one of the things I mentioned, because there are people, and it's just, it's not that my way is the right way or the wrong way. It's that, and I used to be very envious of people like LeBron James, who had one passion, one overarching thing, it was basketball. Played basketball all day, every day. Kobe Bryant, all day, every day. Became the best of their fields, you know, the greats of all time. And I'm like, it would be amazing to have just one thing I could just do all day and be passionate about all day, you know, and just basically stake my life on. But, like, I didn't have anything like that. Uh, I was more of the other thing where I love all, like, many things. I love arts. I love the sciences. I love health and fitness. I even learned that I love dentistry but I just don't love doing it all day long. Mm -hmm. uh, so for, like kind of my take home mission, mission uh, take home message for the kids in the university was I'm like, find, you know, find what works for you. You know, if doing one thing and one thing you love and you can be the greatest at it, go by all means, go all in. There's probably a high, very high probability of success. If you're more like me, a little bit scatterbrained, uh, I don't, don't let that be a deterrent. Just know that you can't just be, you have to be scatterbrained with focus, meaning like, okay, you want to do a whole bunch of things, that's fine. But, you know, know what those whole, be able to focus on those, those different things. And like you said, like, if you have passion, like, you know, it'll help, you know, with the stick and stick to itness of that. Yeah. You can only ignore that inner voice or that inner calling for so long. And in your book, Your Drum, we learn about Joseph's journey from listening to those he looked up to, to listening to his inner voice, what James Hillman calls his daimon, you call your drum. Can you tell yeah. us more? It was 2015 where, you know, I was really, I, I looked at, it was when I wrote that book called Your Drum and it basically taught, it, it's a, it's a, it's a fictional novella that talks about kind of the struggle of, I think we all, especially I've experienced that I had like this burning desire, like this deep down desire to get like the most out of my life. Mm -hmm. And for years, basically up until, you know, that point when I was, I, I remember the day when I was 26, I'll, I, I'll get to in a second, but like up till then, it's kind of like you have limiting beliefs and you have fears and you have doubts and these things help kind of like keep that fire at bay. So you don't have to look at it, you know? And the problem is one day I looked at the fire, meaning this passion and basically asked myself, like, if I could live any life, like, what would I do? Like, and I just let my, I remember this, I was sitting in my office 
Uh, and I think a patient had, didn't show up. So I was just kind of daydreaming and, you know, asked myself really two dangerous questions. If I could do anything, like time was not an issue, money was not an issue, resources, skills weren't an issue, nothing. There was no limits. Like, what would I do? Would I be sitting here, you know, doing dental sleep medicine or would I do, be doing something else? And if, if, I think if someone like honestly asked themselves that question, they're probably going to say they're, they'd do something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I surely did. And said that I was like, yeah, I could think of like a lot of like, I could design a life that'd be much better than that. So I kind of just let my imagination run and design this fantasy fairy tale life. And then I asked the subsequent most dangerous question. And that is, okay, well then why am I not living this fantasy life? And really, I think it comes down to, I mean, the answer is really fear. And it can be fear of failure. It can be fear of losing what you have to go for what you want. But honestly, I mean, it comes down to fear and or belief. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I did not have, I had had this inconvenient belief that I didn't really, I didn't really buy into impossibilities because I have been an avid reader for, you know, ever since I got out of school, (laughs) imagine that. Uh, And I would read biographies, tons of biographies, people that, you know, started from nothing, the worst circumstances, had nothing, and then rose to the heights of their field. And I mean, if, and, you know, I put myself in their shoes. I'm like, like, look, if they could do that and accomplish that, like, I don't have any excuse because I am privileged beyond measure in so many ways from like parents to, you know, any way imaginable. Uh, and I'm like, so I really don't have the excuses of, okay, I can't to say this is impossible. Uh, so it really comes down to fear. And when I really looked at that, I'm like, okay, I could make this decision. I mean, you can just live in fear, right? And then not do what, you know, design a life that you might want to live, or you could just go for it. And on that day, I remember that I was like, you know what? I, I, I'm not really afraid of losing what I got, you know, it's good, but it, what's the worst that could happen. Right. Mm-hmm. And what really super got me super motivated was not so much living this fairy tale life, but was proving to myself that it would be possible to create it. And so ever since that day, I've kind of my mission, which seems kind of silly is to prove to myself that it's possible to create this impossible life that I imagined, you know, five years ago or so. And so that's, that's kind of like my own personal, you know, mission thing that gets me up and drives me every day. And I share things publicly online to maybe it'll help inspire other people as well, but kind of a long answer to, uh, you know, what gets me up in the morning. That's right. Yeah. And this is a commonality that we share. We both have this sort of adult ADD and we chase things that excite us. I took some time off the fire service because I was more excited about educating first responders on chronic disease and burnout prevention. And you left your comfortable dental practice. You listened to your drum and invented the NED device to help people dream again, to help them sleep better and improve their quality of life. So can you talk more about this inflection point and leaning into that fear? There's these inflection points, I think that, you know, anyone can have in their life where they, where they decide to make a decision that basically takes them from their comfort zone into out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And I think before I made a real big, big one, what looked like big decisions, like bold, kind of crazy from the outside decisions, I made other smaller ones that kind of built up this kind of jumping out of your comfort zone muscle a little bit. So for example, when I was in dental school, 
uh, I had the realization that there was no way I was going to want to drill and fill teeth for the next four years of my life, eight, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week. I knew that. So I started, you know, I stepped out of my comfort zone a little bit and I actually started an online, you know, kind of like a personal training website company. It was called Muscle Science and I created some programs for muscle building and cut and fat loss while I was in dental school. And that was definitely out of my comfort zone. So I took a small step there, which was actually, it felt at the time like a huge step. And it enabled me to take my next big step, which was after dental school, I did not go do what a traditional dentist would do and, you know, start, a, uh, you know, go into private, you know, just do general dentistry. I started this, probably has never been done before. I, you know, I don't know, uh, but this practice exclusively treating sleep disordered breathing. Like, mm -hmm. and so basically in the dental world, that's just not done. Uh, so, but I, so I, but because of starting muscle science in dental school, I had the confidence to make another big decision and try and do this. You found and a niche. From, yeah, well, it, it was a niche, but you know, at the time, it felt like such a huge decision mm -hmm. and it was scary. And the reason I was able to make it is because I made a, a scary decision earlier, <laughs> which then, you know, I started this dental sleep practice, which enabled me to make the next scary decision, which was to basically go all in on this device that I'd been developing. Uh, and so kind of the moral of the story is I think the more people can like, you know, inch outside their comfort zone, the stronger that muscle gets to be able to continue to make bold decisions, you know, as they go along. Sometimes I think it, it is just, you know, a turning point. Someone hits a point and says, okay, things are going to change. Uh, yeah. But other times it's like, you know, there's smaller steps that help change the trajectory of where you end up. You know, if you turn, the trajectory just 10 degrees in one direction and you fly across the United States, you know, you end up in vastly different places. So it's kind of just like, you know, <laughs> each step outside your comfort zone is like moving that, that, that where that plane takes off, you know, one degree North, further North, one degree further North, one degree further North until you really do will end up in just a completely different place than, you know, where you initially set out. If you weren't to step outside that comfort zone, your comfort zone is the actual danger zone. The comfort zone is, it is, it's, it's a trap unless you love your life and everything's right. And then enjoy the comfort zone. Right. Uh, that's kind of how I think about it. I'm like, if you love everything about your life and you don't want anything to change, then, then that's wonderful. I just think, you know, eventually, well, if you get there, great, congratulations. But I think what happens to a lot of people is, you know, they sit in their comfort zone and they start to get it starts to not get so comfortable it's like you if you lay in a bed too long you start to get like bed sores right you want to get up you want to move you want, to, yeah. you, want you want something different and I, and you know i think the first step to that is getting just getting super clear on what you really want people avoid that like that's what i was talking about earlier when i say you know looking at the fire the fire inside the passion inside and you look at that and you say well, what would I really want? People don't want to look at that because then you have to confront why you don't have it. You have to say, I'm either afraid or I don't believe it's possible. And you can use the excuse, like, I don't believe it's possible. That's probably what most people would do to, in order to self-justify staying in that comfort zone. But, mm -hmm. you know, if someone just gets super clear and says, first step one, this is what I want, and, and really gets clear on that, a lot of the next steps are going to happen on their own because people don't want to feel like a failure. And they say, okay, this is what I really want. And I don't have it. There's that gap there. People want to close that gap and they, and they don't want the reason to close that gap staying where they are. Cause that's kind of admit, admitting like, you know, either I'm afraid or like, like I said, like you don't believe they can do it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, when I, at that, 
university talk that I gave, that's kind of the framework I gave people. I said, really, there's just kind of like three steps, three things that, that you need. One is a clear desire. And people have desires. A lot of times they're just not clear because they haven't given themselves the permission to dream and, you know, create in their mind a life that they would love a vision. Second thing is believing that it's possible. Uh, and I think this is where a lot of people, I mean, and the internet's great for this, where you can just look and just see what you think is impossible. Other people are doing it. And those other people aren't smarter. They're not more talented. They don't have more resources. Uh, they, they might just be more resourceful. Uh, and then like the third part of that equation has to do with fear and or doubt. And, uh, if you can get over the fear, if you can find the courage to go for it and believe in it and you have the vision, I mean, I think you have the recipe to, you know, create that life that you want. And you really believed in this Ned device. And I'd like to spend some time here, if that's okay with you, because as a firefighter, something we all experience is sharing a bunk room at the firehouse with a bunch of dudes. And the little sleep yeah. we do get is often ruined by someone snoring. Like I remember so many times waking up with a bunch of toilet paper rolls around me, knowing that someone was trying to throw them at me to get me to stop snoring. So my question <laughs> is, why do we snore in the first place? And could most people on CPAP benefit from the Ned device? Great question. So a little bit about sleep disordered breathing. And I mentioned a little bit earlier, but I think the best way to think about it is this continuum. So you have snoring at one end of the spectrum, I'll call it the mild end of the spectrum, and you have severe obstructive sleep apnea on the other end of the spectrum. And basically what they are is this is a narrowing of the airway when you go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And if it's narrowing a little bit and you start to get vibrations in the soft palate, you're going to have snoring. If it stops, if it narrows a lot and basically closes off and you stop breathing, or you're breathing to such a small degree that the oxygen in your blood is desaturating, uh, that you start to get into apnea. And you have, you have mild sleep apnea, you have moderate, you have severe obstructive sleep apnea. And there's various ways of treating sleep apnea. As you mentioned, CPAP is kind of the, the, the old status quo treatment for sleep apnea. And then for those that aren't familiar with it, it's a big machine. It looks like you wear this mask, like a Darth Vader mask pumps air through your airway to keep the, basically a pneumatic splinting of the airway uh, so, to, so, it's, so it doesn't collapse. Uh, most people find that quite uncomfortable. I think about half of the people prescribed them, never wear them. Uh, and so they basically decide to, they'd rather, you know, suffocate in their sleep than wear that. Mm -hmm. uh, luckily, and this is what got me super interested in dental sleep medicine was dentists have a novel solution to obstructive sleep apnea through these oral devices. And it's similar to like CPR, which I'm sure you're familiar with. You pull the jaw forward to open up the airway, right? Mm -hmm. And these oral devices work in a very similar manner. It, it, they stabilize the jaw in a slightly forward position and, you know, helps hold the airway in an open, open position. So it keeps it from collapsing. And that same concept is used to treat snoring as it is obstructive sleep apnea. The amount that the jaw is held forward is kind of the variable factor. Okay. Uh, and so that's what I was doing as a dentist. You know, I was treating patients with oral appliances to treat sleep apnea. Most of my patients, maybe a huge percentage, they tried CPAP, just can't get it to work. So they're doing the second option, these oral devices by, that dentists can make with advanced training. Uh, however, the issue was if, <laughs> so the oral devices worked very good for a certain percentage of patients. And not for everyone, unfortunately. And one of the issues is you hold the jaw slightly forward, but some people you have to hold it more and more and more forward. And as you can imagine, that gets uncomfortable. And yeah. there's, there's some adverse side effects, like your, your bite can change, you can have some TMJ issues, uh, et cetera. 
So I was like, and for these oral devices are expensive. They're not covered well by insurance. And the last thing I wanted to do for a dentist is like have an expensive procedure for people that kind of worked. Like to me, that just, I was like, I'm not going to settle for that. So that led me to, you know, going on to figuring out what to do. And that's where I came up with this idea for the NED device, which is basically something you put in your nose and it works through this technology called EPAP, which is expiratory positive air pressure. It's basically using the power of your own breathing, your own exhalation to you breathe against a slight back pressure and that slight back pressure helps hold the airway open. And my idea at the time was, look, I'm going to use what's called the NED device. I'm going to use this in combination with oral devices and I'll be able to treat everyone mild, you know, snoring to severe obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, and as I got, you know, created NED and it's been years and years and years that, you know, there's a lot of FDA hurdles to get approved for, to be able to treat sleep apnea. Uh, however, snoring is not like a, like a disease that I need FDA approval to use the, the device for. So what we have been doing is we've been, you know, selling device as a snoring device. My goal is to get this one day my, you know, the long-term goal is to get Ned, the Ned device, FDA approved for sleep apnea for over-the-counter purchase. And I, and there's a lot of, lot that has to happen for that to happen, but I feel like that would be the most game-changing way to make an impact in this realm of sleep disorder breathing. Because so many people have sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. Many people know it. Most of them don't know it. Most of them are in the mild range of sleep apnea, which means, you know, a CPAP I don't want to say it's overkill, but it's kind of overkill. Uh, and, you know, oral devices are a great option, but they're really expensive. And so I was like, man, if there's something that worked, it was cost effective, it was comfortable, it was small. Uh, like, that's the answer to solving like this, which is really like epidemic levels of sleep apnea, uh, as well as snoring. So snoring is a sign of apnea. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's kind of long term goal. And I, I think that kind of answers the question answers the question. So Ned is not currently FDA approved for sleep apnea. So I don't market it as a sleep apnea treatment. I don't, I don't do anything like that. I don't tell people to don't use it for sleep apnea, just for snoring at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do hope, hope to get it uh, FDA approved for apnea sometime, hopefully sooner rather than later, but who knows? Yeah. It sounds <laughs> awesome. You know, if you, if you, yeah. If you, if you get approved for sleep apnea, like if I got right now, if I went and got FDA approved for sleep apnea, I'm sure I could do it in the next you know, 12 to 24 months. But the problem is we require prescription then to purchase and then the cost of the device goes up. Insurance companies aren't covering EPAP technology anyways, like with any kind of regularity. So really all it would do is increase the, the barrier of, for people to get it, increase the cost and really wouldn't do much. That's why I kind of, you know, I really want the over-counter remedy, kind of like things like, you know, a lot of the over-counter drugs that we can buy today were once prescription only. And then once they found out, you know, these are safe, in, the, in these certain doses in these cases, then they can be sold over the counter. So, you know, yeah. that's kind of what I'm hoping to eventually get to. Not only is it beneficial for the person with the, with the problem, but if you haven't been around or if you've ever been around somebody who snores, it, it ruins your night too. And, you know, like I said, if you're finally getting some sleep at the firehouse, but everybody's snoring, it fucking sucks. So hopefully firefighters <laughs> will get on and check out this Ned device. I appreciate you saying that because I basically, we most of the people that I've, you know, we kind of target the device to is to, you know, couples who share a room because mm -hmm. the common thing is, I mean, more common than you would imagine is couples that don't sleep in the same room because of snoring. Right. Uh, and to me, it's kind of, you know, it's sad. That's what it's, it's one of the times you get to actually have some peaceful time with a loved one. You know, the, the world is quiet. You can lay down there with them and go to sleep, wake up with them. 
And the fact that, you know, snoring separates so many people to me is, you know, I mean, I, to me, it's doing some good in the world, I think, you know, bringing people together like that. Uh, but you're right. Like <laughs> at a firehouse, I can only imagine you, I mean, your guys sleep is precious. And if someone's keeping everyone up snoring, like that's, that's tragic. Yeah, man. That, exactly. Sleep is crucial. And you know this, I mean, as a physique competitor, how important is quality sleep for gains and body composition? You know, it's probably the most underrated quality of any health and fitness physique, anything uh, is sleep. I mean, so, and you know, I got to, I had the I'll, I'll call it the privilege of seeing how important sleep is firsthand. Cause when you're treating people with sleep apnea, these are people that are not, are not getting basically adequate sleep all night long. Like mm-hmm. sleep apnea, what happens is once the airway closes off, you're going to have what's called a micro arousal. The body's going to wake itself up. You won't consciously always wake up. The body wakes itself up so it can open up the airway. And then you start falling into a slightly deeper sleep until you, until you can't breathe again, the body micro. And so these micro arousals happen all night long. Basically, you don't get any good deep sleep. You don't get any, like you don't get any REM sleep. And it's, it's, and I mean, the quality of life change when you see someone who's had sleep apnea and usually it goes 10 years before it gets diagnosed. That's on average. Mm-hmm. So they've gone 10 years without sleep and then you treat their sleep apnea and like it is night and day different. Like they're, they're different people. They get off antidepressant medication. They lose weight. Like, it's like, like, like nothing. So, I mean, that's kind of, I get to see lack of sleep kind of on that extreme spectrum, people with sleep apnea, mm-hmm. but you know, people that don't have sleep apnea, but aren't getting the quality sleep, they're suffering the same kind of effects, just not to the same degree. So they're going to have less, they're going to have less energy. They're mm-hmm. going to have, they're going to have, it's going to be cut, you know, adverse on their mental state of being their mental mm-hmm. health. Uh, it's going to mess with their hormones, which make it way harder to lose fat. Uh, like if you have elevated cortisol all day long because of lack of sleep, like, look, good luck. Like losing fat is just, it's just, it's a, it's an uphill battle. So sleep is like one of those, one of those things that, you know, it's, I actually grew up. So my dad is kind of, he's, he's not military, but he's kind of like a military guy. Meaning like you're not sleeping in short haircuts, very much disciplinary and that kind of thing. And so I grew up with the mentality of like sleeping in is just, to me, it it was like a lazy thing. Like, okay, it's just not allowed and it's laziness. Uh, But really like sleep is super important. So that's, it's one of those things that like I changed my mind on. I'm like, I'm all for like the schools pushing start times back and letting kids sleep. I know that causes all kinds of problems with parents trying to get kids to school and work and things like that. But like kids sleeping and growth and development hugely important adult sleeping for just you know well-being quality of life health like it's huge yeah it's huge it's so crucial for mental health like my first few episodes on this podcast i would get off duty i'd be so tired that my podcast would just in all honesty just be horrible and like it got to the point where when i would record them on my second day off and i was actually rested i was like man this makes so much difference and it's like you said the military first responders if you're wearing the sleep deprivation as a badge of honor you won't be wearing it for very long because obviously poor sleep is linked to all-cause mortality it's poor sleep poor health you're right. I mean, you put it better than I did as, and, and that's like, you know, wearing, uh, this, you know, this, I'm not going to sleep. I'm going to work all these hours as a badge of honor kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, and that's kind of a mentality. I, I think it, it, it's pretty prevalent in Western society. 
And really, you're just doing yourself a disservice. <laughs> uh, you're doing yourself and those around you a disservice because it does very much negatively impact how you feel, how you react towards others. Now, going back to the physique and exercise, something I admire about you is you own the fact that part of why you work out is strictly for vanity reasons. Why do you think you can talk about this shame-free while so many of us feel ashamed <laughs> for exercising just so we can look good naked? Oh, yeah. So... Well, I mean, I unabashedly like because I was a fat kid and, and so that's what led me into it all from the start was, look, I didn't want to be a fat kid. And so, I mean, that is it's a combination of vanity, insecurity, uh, because as a kid, you know, I was insecure with my body. And so I wanted to get a good body. So I didn't have that insecurity. Like that's mm -hmm. where it came from. I and mean, I'm not embarrassed of that. I think that's pretty, pretty common, you know, in the society that we grow up with that, you know kind of was like look that it's you know the the bowling and whatnot that goes on with that and i'm not saying being overweight is a good thing i think it's i probably was very unhealthy as well you know so it was pointed at a health issue but not like a self-worth issue uh but i think early on it's like a self self-worth issue uh and i you know once i kind of got the body i wanted and i had you know my self-esteem and i'm confident in myself uh you know I just honestly enjoy the art and science of bodybuilding. Like I enjoy like looking at a good physique, like, you know, an artist or whatever appreciates appreciates a good painting or, you know, you look out and you see a beautiful sunset. Like to me, the bodybuilding and physique is kind of like, it's, it's got this beauty aspect, but it also has the science aspect that helps create the beauty. Right. Uh, and so I just really, and you know, the intersection of art and science has been like, my favorite things are there. That's why I love spending time. Uh, and so bodybuilding has that. And I, that's the appeal to me today. Cause I don't, I have no desires to do like physique compet competitions or, or, you know, impress the girls or I don't need it for self-confidence or self-worth anymore. I honestly do just enjoy, you know, from a vanity standpoint, the art and science of it. Uh, mm -hmm. I know working out and eating right, uh, you know, it helps me feel good. It helps me perform the way I want to perform, you know, mentally with my job, et cetera. Uh, but just from a vanity standpoint, I don't see any, anything wrong with just enjoying beauty for what it is. And we call it vanity, but, you know, it's just as easy to call it beauty, you know, and beauty's in the eye of the beholder. What I think is a beautiful physique, someone else might not think is so beautiful. And that's totally fine. Uh, so, yeah, it's like, it, to me, it just, it is what it is. <laughs> if you're looking good, you're probably feeling good. So the correlation is there. Health and fitness has one of those things where you can have as the saying goes, you can have your cake and eat it too, you know, like you can have a good body and just luckily often that means good health outcomes as well. Not always right. the case. We could talk about that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's one of those two, those things tend to go hand in hand. Yeah. Well, you can have your steak and eat it too. And you're well known in the carnivore community. And if someone has questions for me about carnivore, I, I honestly just point them in your direction. I, I point them to your websites, kevinstock.io or meat.health, because you've probably researched it more heavily than I ever will and written about it. And if you want to know about plant toxins and anti-nutrients, you've covered it. And for those who don't know about your journey, you basically experimented with different diets and found success with keto, which then led to carnivore to just eating meat and some eggs for, I understand what years now. Yeah. So, I mean, my nutrition, my, my, my physique journey brought me up to, uh, I don't know how old I was. It, 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 but what happened was I was starting 
a couple different businesses at one time. <laughs> I was working a whole lot of hours and physique finally took a backseat to just like mental performance. Like I was like, look, I, I can't be drinking coffee all day long. Uh, my sleep is suffering. Like I need to, I need to figure out how to mentally perform at the best I can. If it means sacrificing a little bit of physique, I'm, I'm game for that, but, uh, you know, et cetera. And I had read about ketogenic diets. I'd done ketogenic diets in the past. Uh, and so this was in early, some 2017. I did basically six months or so, very strict ketogenic diet, limited protein, uh, did all the right things, right? And mm. I, I felt maybe a little bit better, but not, not nothing miraculous. And one thing led to another, I started eliminating all these plant-based foods. By the end of the year, I was eating only meat. Uh, and from, you know, probably the fall of 2017 till today, I have, you know, I went two and a half years with not one cheat. I mean, by, by cheat, I mean any plant-based food. All I ate was meat for two and a half years. Uh, last year was the first time I did some carbohydrate experiments yeah. and I wrote a long article about these experiments, why I did them, et cetera. Uh, it's on the website if people are interested, but yeah, I went years just eating meat. And I mean, meat is, I, I mean, it was game changing for me, mental performance through the roof. Uh, I was able, what I, so when I did the ketogenic diet before I started, I did my body composition, you know, it was I lost a lot of muscle <laughs> doing okay. the ketogenic diet, like noticeable fast. You were trying to limit protein or what? Yeah, I, I was limiting protein because I wanted okay. to try and get into deep nutritional ketosis. And I thought that was going to be the answer to my mental performance. And it just wasn't. And so when I stopped limiting protein, I started eating tons of red meat, <laughs> literally. Uh, and I got rid of all the carbohydrates, all the plant-based foods. My mental performance, the best of my entire life. I got my physique back. Um, and you know, the rest is history. And I went on to write about why I did this stuff, what I'd look, what I've learned, you know, I'd studied nutrition and diet and for, I mean, years, I mean, that's what, when I was in college, I was a chemistry major. I studied biology as well. And I studied all of this from the view of like bodybuilding and health and nutrition. And I would just apply it all to like building muscle and burning fat. And so I, I, I finally really just started writing all about this in the context of a meat-based diet and just makes so much sense from an ancestral point of view, from a science point of view, from a research standpoint that like meat is just undoubtedly the foundation of the human diet. And the thousands and tens of thousands of people that I've now, you know, talked with, I have a 30-day guide to going, you know, full meat-based, which I don't think everyone needs to go full meat-based, but a lot of times it's a good place to start, you know, it's downloaded over a hundred thousand times. Like a lot of people have done this just and the stories that you will hear the, sure. Anecdotal, but whatever, like amazing, like autoimmune disease remission, you know, diabetes reversal, hypertension reversal. It goes on and on and on and on. Yeah. And I have to draw the comparison when Weston A. Price, another dentist went looking for yeah. indigenous tribes and hunter gatherers, he found excellent dental health, which I think he was surprised by. And a lot of nose to tail eating and some properly prepared plants. Are you pretty much on board with his findings? Just you consider plants unnecessary? Yeah. Weston Price is an absolute, like, you know, true, uh, I don't know the right word, but OG. like a, a exactly he's an og yeah. and 
yeah, basically, I, I mean, a lot of what he says, I think, is just spot on. Um, you know, I know, I know we don't need to eat plant-based foods to survive. Like, no question in my mind. Uh, for some people, having some plant-based foods, I think, can help. I think for most people, they're causing all kinds of issues. And when we say plant-based foods, what, what I think a lot of people miss out on is, you know, we say plant-based and we think of, like, uh, celery, we think of broccoli. But we don't think of, like, most of what the junk food that we eat today is, you know, most of it's plant-based foods, uh, just, you know, processed in a way that makes it like not look like a plant. Right. Uh, so, uh, I mean, most of the world is on a plant-based diet, like 70%, 70% of our food or more is, comes from plant-based foods. Uh, so we are on a plant-based diet and, you know, a Western plant-based diet is you know, wrought with disease. And yeah, I think Weston A. Price was an early pioneer of, you know, oh, this is how humans are actually supposed to eat. When we zoom out and look at the evolutionary timeline from Homo habilis to Erectus to Sapiens, meat gradually became the staple food of humans. You wrote and spoke about the human body being a hunter's body, which I find fascinating. Can you just give us a quick rundown of the anatomical adaptations of the human body, which evolved to optimize meat eating? Yeah. So, you know, I've always been kind of, you know, the left brain science, science minded, look through the microscope, look at the reactions, study the, the molecules and, you know, very like detail, look at the details. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really opened up my perspective, almost as much as looking at the details is zooming way out and looking at, okay, what, what's the most likely thing that humans are designed to eat? And the way that I, I looked at this is basically zoomed all out, look at human history, like you mentioned from Homo habilis, which is probably around 3 million years ago, when we are, you know, diverging from our primate ancestors, what, what is it? And, you know, the evidence seems like just overwhelming that we diverged to incorporating meat, more and more meat in our diet. And this allowed for the evolutionary adaptations such as our guts, which our primates have these gigantic guts that are designed to ferment tons of fiber for energy. That's how they maintain their huge bodies, right? They eat leaves, but maintaining huge bodies. How do they do that? They do that by this, these specialized guts that ferment fiber and turn them into fat. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if you look at human's anatomy today, we can ferment basically minuscule amounts of fiber to, into, into fat. Like we couldn't, we, if you try and live off fiber, you will die. Like undoubtedly, like you can't sustain your life off fiber. So what happened is we lost this, this these, we traded these big guts that could digest fiber and we, tra we traded for big brains. So our guts shrank, uh, we, were, we shifted to a meat-based diet and this energetically, calorically dense diet facilitated the growth of our brains, which are just astronomically huge when you compare them interspecies-wise. Uh, and, you know, we have other adaptations through the way the, the, the gut brain connection is one of the biggest ones. Cause if you look at it from a science standpoint, like there's no other way that this could have happened unless humans went to meat based dieting. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, I mean, like that's the way it happened. Uh, and there's some arguments for like, okay, what, what was fire's role in this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But almost like you know, you ask a paleontologist, like what happened? Like meat, meat is the diverging fork between humans and our earliest ancestors. And then, I mean, we, did, we evolved other ways as well as like, you notice, like 
humans are very bipedal, right? We can, we can run, we can hunt. Uh, whereas, you know, our, our primate ancestors are not so bipedal, right? They're good at climbing trees and such, but, uh, not so much at hunting. Right. Uh, so, you know, that was an evolutionary adaptation. Another one is like, if you look at our stomachs, they're extremely acidic. We got, you know, this very acidic HCL based, uh, stomach, which you basically only find in carnivores, uh, and early humans in the adaptation, I mean, the evolutionary argument would be is early humans were not good hunters, right? So what would happen is we'd get our meat via scavenging and a better hunter would kill an animal. We'd come in, pick up the remains, you know, depending on how long it sat, sat there, pathogens, etc. cetera, uh, you know, infestate that, that meat, that dinner that we're about to eat. And so humans evolved an acidic stomach that basically kills off these pathogens to make it, you know, being carrion feeders possible. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's other like, you know, I, I've written about this uh, as well. There's other adaptations that, you know, we can see through human history that facilitate us to be more and more meat eating, less and less plant-based mm-hmm. uh, until the agricultural revolution, of course. <laughs> and what do you say about the argument against like, what do our teeth say about us and what we should be eating? Yeah. So some people will uh, like the common argument I see is like, Oh, look at our teeth. Right. Uh, so people tend to ignore that our, 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 like our ancestors were primates. So our teeth are representative primates. Meaning we have 32 teeth, just like, you know, just like a primate. It's interesting that our 32 teeth are the only ones that don't fit in our heads. Another argument why that doesn't happen. Right. But uh, yeah, our, our teeth, like we don't have sharp canines, like, you know, like a dog or something like that. And some people are like, Oh, it means they're not mediators. Right. But I mean, I mean, really that's just representative of, change in social structure like we weren't killing each other to you know or fighting with our teeth to get this meat you know right we formed these social you know these social collaborations we hunted as basically a team as a tribe um and we weren't like you know the, the fangs are really a lot of times for interspecies like intimidation things and you know uh it, it just represented a social change in humans from, you know, earlier animal versions mm-hmm. like primates. Yeah. And it's normal for you to pull teeth in kids, but it can't be normal for kids to need their teeth pulled. So what's going on there and how do you talk to these kids? Because obviously you can't tell them to just eat meat. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of, I would say shame the normalization we've had with dental caries, cavities, pulling teeth, because uh, it's considered normal, like a kid goes to the dentist and they have cavities. Like they're, it's, it's almost like they're expected. Like, oh, how many kids? Do, how many cavities does my kid have today? It's like, yeah. but this is like, this is a decay process. Like, not, not a good process. Like, it, it blows my mind that it's normalized actually. Because like, if you went, I just imagine like taking a kid, a kid is imagine their kid's arms hurting, right? So you go to a, like an orthopedic surgeon, and like, oh, my kid's arm's been hurting, and the orthopedic's like, oh yeah, there's bugs eating a hole through the bones in his arm, like. Mm-hmm. Parents would probably be like, oh my God, that's pretty crazy, right? <laughs> but for some reason, like we've normalized it with dentistry, which is like what we have is we have bacteria eating holes through the strongest substance in animal in the human body. Uh, not a normal process at all, but we've normalized it. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, the dentist, the general dentistry that, that I've done since I've graduated has been pediatric dentistry because I feel for kids. So, you know, they don't know better. Uh, so I try and do as much nutritional counseling as I can. You know, we of course talk about brushing twice a day, talk about limiting sugar intake, things like that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. 
Dentists have that sort of window to the soul. You know, you're looking in the mouth, you're looking at exposed bones and you're looking at gums, which if they're inflamed, there's probably some inflammation going on in the body. This is finally starting to, in a small way, starting to get integrated. Because like, like you said, like, you know, looking into the mouth is just like, it's like getting, it, it's like getting a snapshot of what's going on, going on in the body, right? And like you said, your gums are inflamed. What else could be inflamed, right? Uh, your teeth are rotting out. What do you think that means is going on inside, right? Because like, we know that, you know, the, the carbohydrates and sugars are responsible for initiating decay process in, in the teeth. But we, we just kind of ignore what happens downstream after the sugar goes down into the stomach, right? Okay, so that food wasn't, you know, it's not a good option for the mouth, but maybe it's fine for the body. I mean, to me, it's very logical, you know, train of thought like, oh, look, if it's destroying your mouth, it's probably not good for the rest of your body either, right? Uh, and we're starting to finally see these connections, uh, and you know, especially with diabetes and, and gingivitis, periodontitis. You know, we're seeing connections with gingivitis and uh, per gingivitis, periodontitis. Basically, that means like your gums are inflamed, your bone, you're losing bone uh, that's holding your teeth in place, and we're seeing connections with that. Everything to like Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, you name it. Yeah. So, I mean, some of these connections are finally being made. Uh, it's one of the problems with healthcare, though. Is everything is so like compartmentalized where everything kind of affects everything, right? You, you, you live in, you have a body, it's a whole system, but we treat that system in small parts. And, you know, I, I, you know, I, one thing that I hope for healthcare is that we start treating those parts more, you know, holistically, uh, cause you know, that's usually the proper approach. Uh-huh. And so you eat a lot of meat, mainly meat, thousands and thousands of pounds of it. So I want to know yeah. about where your steak comes from, how you prepare it, and how you cook it. So on, on Friday, let's see, yeah, Friday this week, I'm going down, I'm picking up a cow from a farmer I know, and I'm going to pick it up, I'm going to store it in my deep freeze. That's what I do. Uh, to me, it's the most economical. It's the way to get the best quality meat. I know I'm going to eat, you know, a full cow is a little over 400 pounds of cooked meat. And I know, you know, I'm going to have no problem finishing that probably, you know, no time at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I probably eat 30 pounds of meat a week. So it's over hundred pounds a month. So, you know, that's basically every quarter I can eat <laughs> every quarter of the year, I can eat a full cow or so. So that's what I do. Um, I have some ideas to try and help people with this solution in the future. I haven't really, I haven't told anyone about it yet. I'm kind of announcing it here. Uh, Please do. Because I, I feel like, so my, the company I have online, meat.health, what I want to do is people want this. Like people want to buy meat, high quality meat from farmers that are feeding their animals correctly, that are practicing regenerative agriculture, that are climate like, you know, like they, they, they were treating the earth like it should be treated, right? Mm -hmm. uh, treating the animals like they should be treated. They want high quality meat. They want to get it like this high quality meat. They want to be assured of it and they want to get it at a, at a reasonable price. Like if you try and buy this meat at a grocery store, like my, first of all, you don't, you're not really sure about the source. Then you're paying just astronomical amount of money just for, you know, every cut. Uh, so it's not really cost effective. And, uh, but I understand why people don't do what I'm doing because it's actually quite difficult to go find a farmer that does these things properly. It's a, you know, it's a hassle to wait for them to have the cow ready to, to figure out how it all gets processed, to go pick it up, to have a deep freeze where you can store it all. And ideally you're not supposed to freeze meat for more than six to 12 months. So unless they're eating tons of meat like me, 
then they're going to worry about going bad. But I had, I have some ideas to make to like solve all these problems and I haven't committed to it yet, but I'm in the early stages of basically, I know I've, I've talked with farmers across the entire country and I, 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 I don't know if people would be up for this. You tell me, uh, I'm going to buy cows and I'm going to offer people to buy these cows online. You can, you can buy a full cow or a half cow. Okay. And once you buy it, your inventory is stored in your online freezer, right? And you can just have as much shipped to you as you want every month. So you don't have to have a deep freeze. You don't have to, have to find a, the farmer. It's just all done for you. And you just, or, and once your inventory is out, you can buy another cow. One of the things you get when you get, buy a whole cow, you get half a ground beef. I know it's a lot for most people. Like most people are like, I don't need 200 pounds of ground beef. So you can substitute ground beef for other cuts, uh, you know, in your online freezer. So like, that's what I want to set up for people. I think it'd be good for the farmers. I think it'd be good for the end consumer. I think it'd be good for the planet. I think that would have an incredible impact. And that really resonates with me because I don't have room for a chest freezer in my apartment, but I would love that if I knew that I had already paid for it and I can pretty much just get it on demand. Yeah. I mean, it's what I would have wanted to do before I, so I went through the process of, oh, look, I'm going to try and find the right farmers. I'm going to try and find that, make sure they're doing it right. Okay. And then once I found them, I'm like, okay, then the cows, you know, you got to wait for the cow to be ready. I've been waiting on this one for a month. Uh, <laughs> that, then on Friday I had, you know, I had to set up everything with the processing company and I got to go pick it up, which is, you know, it's my, my local, my farmer's not in my backyard. I got to drive about an hour to go get it. Then, I mean, I had to buy a deep freeze because a cow, I mean, a cow takes up a lot of space. Yeah. And I'm just like, man, this has got to be an option, right? Where someone already does all this. And really, I mean, there's some okay options out there. I just think, you know, kind of what I just described. I think, I think a lot of people would be down for it. And it was going to be a 2021 project. I'll keep an eye out on Saturday 7 for you to announce <laughs> when this is jumping off. All right, Kevin, well, just a couple more questions before we wrap up. As an aspiring artist and musician, I'm curious what we would find in your Spotify search history. Since I haven't been going to the gym, I haven't been listening to it at all. Uh, so I actually, though, just listen to whatever popular music of the day is. I know that sounds crazy, but I like to have kind of like a pulse on what people like. Uh, and a lot of the popular music today doesn't fit my taste exa exactly, but you know, Spotify helps tailor popular music to my taste a little bit. But yeah, I do listen to mostly popular music and where pop intersects other genres. Okay. So like, you know, the, the intersect, I, like, I don't listen to a lot of country, but you know, where some pop and, and country intersect, I like that. Where some pop and R&B intersect, I like that, you know, et cetera. So, you know, that's what I'm listening to. Yeah. Uh, and basically, because one of the interesting things about art is it needs constraint, it needs creative constraints. And so when I'm going to make music, one of my creative constraints is like, okay, what is, what kind of music are people making today? Right. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I can go make like a classical ballad, but like, okay. <laughs> right. So two things that I do is like, what do I like? And then what do other people like? And then that's kind of, I use one method I use to, for a creative constraint. Mm -hmm. uh, so kind of a boring answer, but that, that, that you'll find whatever's on the top of the charts in the pop area. I like it, man. And then if you'd be so kind as to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now? Man, I, I'm always got books. I've got books right here. So I just picked up uh, The Genius of Flexibility by Bob Cooley. So this quarantine, one thing I've done is focus on what I've neglected for my entire life, and that's mobility. Mm -hmm. And so I've been doing a lot of yoga. I've been doing home workouts again, but uh, I focus a lot on mobility. So I picked up this book by Bob Cooley. I, I've heard good things. 
called The Genius of Flexibility. Um, I picked up a book by Christopher Ryan called Civilized to Death. Yep. Um, I, the book I'm reading right now, let me go, let me go. I, I can't remember the name of it, but it's, uh, it's an inter- it's, it's a book that has blown my mind. And, uh, as far as like the kind of books I like are something that's going to like change my perspective of the world or what's possible or just a totally different viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And this book by Jacques Fresco. Okay. This is an esoteric book. Probably no one has read this, but it's called the best that money can't buy beyond politics, poverty, and war. And this guy was thinking, he's an old man now, uh, but man, he, he was thinking like decades and decades and decades beyond where, <laughs> where we are. So it's just been a, it's been a super interesting book. Thanks for those recommendations. So last question, if you could have a steak dinner with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? So it would be, it would be there's, a, I have a lot of, old role models. I was telling you about all the biographies I, I used to read and especially people that, you know, may, may have passed. And so a lot of my biggest influences are people who have bridged the arts and sciences. Mm-hmm. And so someone like Leonardo da Vinci, everyone knows him as an artist, but man, this guy had a mind like an engineer, scientist, like fascinating. Uh, he did amazing, like amazing work. We had like so far ahead of his time with anatomy. Uh, so Leonardo da Vinci, like Nikola Tesla, like he's a science guy, but th- there's a, a lot more to Tesla. Uh, but I would, I would probably go with Leonardo da Vinci, I guess. I, there, there's a number of people that I would hope to invite onto that dinner party. <laughs> all right, Kevin. So anyone interested in trying an all meat diet or a carnivore, go read Kevin's ultimate 30 day guide to going full carnivore at kevinstock.io. Your podcast is Kevin Stock Radio. You have the Saturday 7 newsletter, which I love. You're on social at KevinStock12, and your book, Your Drum, is on Amazon, read by you. Where else should people go if they want to learn more about you and to keep up with what you're doing? Man, well, thank you. That, that's like the places. So the Saturday 7 is, I, I put a lot of time into the newsletter. So personally, I, I try and limit social media, but I love email newsletters because I feel like you get the best out of people. And so I try and put the best of everything I got into the newsletter. So if you followed me in one place, that's where I would go, just the one email a week. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of people are surprised by it initially, but, but I, I tend to, they say like the, the highest compliment is like, that's the one email they, they look forward to reading every week. And so that's what I hope to deliver every week. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for the conversation. This was a lot of fun. Hey, thanks for having me on. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.